You guys, when I, we were reading the Lord's Prayer together, you may have heard my uh, uh, Catholic coming out of me because I started it with Our Father Who Art in Heaven. That was the uh, was King James, not strictly Catholic. Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Matthew as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this week brings us to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. Uh, like I, I just mentioned, I have a Catholic background, and I've mentioned it before. I went to a Catholic elementary school. My family wasn't Catholic. I never was Catholic, but that's where I went to school, from preschool to sixth grade. Uh, and I had a, a third grade teacher who was a nun who could have seriously been in a movie because of how strict and how mean she was. Seriously seared my conscience of nuns. She She often would make us cry and, like, seemed to take pleasure in it. It was Sister Helene. I don't know if she's still around, but man, she was, she was mean. Uh, and I know if my mom is watching right now, she's like, she remembers. So what I learned about Catholicism, though, growing up uh, and going to a Catholic elementary school is that it's very ritualistic. Uh, so we'd go to Mass every Wednesday, and of course, uh, we can't wear shorts or anything to Mass. We have to wear pants and all that kind of stuff. And I don't remember the exact order of events, but it was the same every week. You go in, um, of course we kids didn't understand it, but when, usually when Mass starts, they go in and they put their fingers in the holy water and make the sign of the crucifix, so I just do it too, you know. And So we'd go in, single file, and we'd file into our pews, and we, you know, we sit, and then the procession comes in, and we stand, and we sit, and you have the fold-out kneeling kneeling things and you kneel and you stand and you sit and so it's the same every week and I remember always it's it's like mid-morning right it's been so long since I had breakfast and I always every week you know they're taking the Eucharist they have the bread and the wine or whatever it was and I always wanted it but I I couldn't they forbade me since I wasn't Catholic and so actually though I remember as a kid when I would sin I I had a rosary and and if I sinned I would take this rosary and I'd hold it in my hands and and pray, 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 and ask God for forgiveness, thinking, right, that he'd hear me better because I'm holding a rosary. There's even a, a certain way to, to pray the rosary, right? You pray uh, like three Our Fathers and, and like 13 Hail Marys, with each bead representing a, a different prayer. And I, I mention all of this, I mention kind of the ritualisticness of it, because it, it brings to mind a maxim that we're all familiar with. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. When something becomes so familiar, or, or when we do it over and over and over again, it, it seems to lose its value or, its, or, or it, how special it is. It loses its special place simply because we do it over and over and over again. And this is no less true of prayer, especially the Lord's Prayer. I can't tell you how many times we pray this prayer <clears throat> we prayed as quickly as we could before soccer practice, before soccer games. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy We'd speed through it and then spend the whole practice cussing. It didn't have any meaning. The irony is that for how often the Lord's Prayer has been offered ritualistically and routinely throughout history, Jesus makes the opposite point. He makes the opposite point of what we often make of the Lord's Prayer. And that, and that point is that Jesus is teaching us not only what to pray, but more deeply how to 
pray. Not, he's not just saying this is what to pray. In fact, he doesn't say this is what to pray. He says this is how you pray. It's been said that the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of like guardrails, right? You don't have to pray this every time, but they're guardrails. They help keep us in the bounds of what proper faithful prayer is. And the Lord's Prayer, actually, it stands at, it's in the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that way, it's, in it, it's actually an encapsulation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Some would say that the entire Gospel of Matthew is found in the Lord's Prayer. And like everything else in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' whole focus is on wholesome righteousness. Being a whole person. Being a wholehearted person. I talked about Catholicism, but we have no less hard a time being ritualistic. Baptists. It's an everybody problem. And don't get me wrong, I think it's good to recite scripture and prayer together. In fact, for I did that on purpose. Because we should, I wish Baptists did that more. Right? I wish we did more of that kind of reciting together. But we, what we must do is take care that our prayers are Christ-like prayers. We must take care that our prayers are Christ-like prayers. Prayers instructed by Christ, prayed with the heart of Christ. The thing about breaking from routine and ritualism is that it, it takes intentionality. It takes effort. Thankfully, Jesus gives us all the grace that we need in that effort. So let's turn in our Bibles to see what Jesus teaches us about Christ-like prayer. And I'm going to start up in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. One time when I was in college, I met with this professor who I'd never met before. I was switching majors probably for the fourth time, as people always do in college. And so I made the mistake, though, of calling her by her wrong name. Not her actual name, but her title. I, I, I called her Mrs. Buchanan. And she promptly corrected me, it's, it's Dr. Buchanan. It's Dr. The way that she wanted me to address her told me, A, a lot about who she was and what she wanted this relationship to be. In my mind, not a very good one. How Jesus starts this prayer tells us a lot about who God is and what our relationship with him is. And that's why, first and foremost, Christ-like prayer is God-centered prayer. 
Christ-like prayer is God-centered prayer. And there is a reason I started in verse 7, because before we dive into the uh, prayer itself, I I want to think about a little bit about the context. So if you remember from last week, Jesus gives two warnings about hypocritical praying. So the first kind is, is praying to be seen by others, praying to receive praise. And the other kind is this Gentile-like praying where you heap up these empty phrases to try to coax God or, or coerce Him. So Jesus says, rather, He says, do not be like them. Rather than doing this, Jesus says, pray like this. And the reason that contrast is important is because rather than trying to get a reluctant God to act over here, Jesus presupposes that a relationship with this God already exists. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father. The relationship is already there. I can, I can speak to Mallory and, and say things to her and ask her to do things precisely because of the relationship that already exists. In the same way, I can relate to God and speak to Him and ask of Him precisely because of the kind of relationship that already exists between us. Jonathan Pennington put it this way. The point is that because of the disciples' child-parent relationship with God made available through the Divine Son, a follower of Jesus does not need to try to persuade or manipulate a reluctant God. Instead, prayers can be simple and direct because they are already predicated on an, on an established familial relationship. So in other words, our prayers are not based on our worthiness to pray. Our prayers are not based on our worthiness to come before this God. We're praying based on His fatherly goodness. Mike Reeves, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time called Delighting in the Trinity, he describes God as a God who is not essentially lonely but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father who has loved the Son and the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is the root of who He is. You can pray like this because in Christ, God is already your heavenly, loving, joyful, welcoming, good Father to you. That's the relationship that that exists. Not between God and sinner, but between father and child. In Christ. This means that first, you must be in Christ. God isn't your father in this way automatically. Yes, it's true that God is father and that he is creator of all things, but you must come to him specifically and especially through the Son. So Jesus presupposes a relationship. But he also presupposes community. Look at what Jesus says. He says, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us. 
Not, not my father. Not my, give me my daily bread. Our prayers aren't just, aren't meant to just be made alone. We're meant to pray together and in community and to share prayer together. And so the Lord's Prayer here, it presents us with a reality that we must hold in tension. Because what did Jesus say right before this? Pray to your Father who is in secret. Go and close the door in your, in your, your closet. So, so the tension is pray, praying secretly in our closets, yet praying together. And so our prayers made both secretly and in community, are God-centered prayers. Because of that, they are God-praising prayers. Look at what Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What Jesus is asking is that God, God make your name holy. God, glorify your name as holy. Peter asks his fellow believers in uh, 1 Peter to do the same thing uh, in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's what Christ is praying for the Father. Father, honor your name as holy. It's a request, simply, for God to honor his name both in the world and that his name would be honored in the hearts of his people. But I, I think more fundamentally, underneath that is that this prayer is a reminder. When I was maybe 12 or 14, I was on vacation with my mom, my stepdad, and my brother. And uh, we, it was morning time, and we were getting ready. And, I mean, I'm a kid, so I'm ready, you know, in like a couple minutes. And, you know, I'm waiting on my mom to get ready and all that kind of stuff. And, like, I'm nagging my mom because I'm hungry and I want breakfast. So, like, let's go to breakfast. When are we going to breakfast? Where are we going to breakfast? Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, like kids always do. And my stepdad tolerated this for about a minute before he looked at me and he said, Son, boy, the world doesn't revolve around you. Just that accent, that deep southern accent. I needed that. I did not like it as a kid, but I needed it. And we need that reminder too. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world isn't about us. Creation isn't about us. Even salvation isn't about us. No, the world, creation, and salvation in all things are about God. There's an old Presbyterian confession of faith that's put into a, a question and answer format. It's called the Westminster Catechism. And the very first question asks this. What is the chief end of man? What is, what is the chief end of man? The ultimate goal of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man is not the goal of creation. Man is not even the goal of Christ's coming. Man is not the goal of salvation. Man is not the goal of the new creation. God's glory is the goal. And that's what this prayer is about. Yes, Christ came for man. Yes, Christ came to save sinners for the glory of God. 
So before we start uttering a, a request to this God, before we utter a request to Him, we need to come before Him by faith, orienting around our hearts, our hearts around two truths, that He is our Father and that He is God. He deserves a special reverence and a unique and holy fear. Psalm 100 says this, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. Remind yourself of who God is by praising Him for all that He is. This is a great, this is a great way to start every prayer. It's to simply praise God and to thank God. For being God. Enter prayer by walking through the gates of God-centered, God-praising prayer. But that's not all. God-centered prayer isn't just God-praising, it's also God-submitting. God-praising and God-submitting. Jesus continues, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Remember how I've talked about how Christ, by sitting on the mountain, he, he symbolically occupies the place between heaven and earth. And through this sermon, he's sending his disciples to embody what it looks like heaven on earth. That's what this is about. Obviously, God rules and reigns right now, right? There is not a decimal of creation that he is not totally and completely sovereign over right now at this moment. But this prayer is specifically about God's saving, glorious reign to be made visible without hindrance to sin or Satan. That's what this prayer is about. God, make your reign and your rule visible without any, any hindrance from the flesh or worldliness or sin or the powers of darkness. And listen, because of that, when we pray this, we're praying and submitting to how God wants to bring that rule. Remember what Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. We are acknowledging that God's way of bringing about His kingdom looks altogether different from how we might imagine it. God's will may not be to make America great. God's will might be bringing about His kingdom through the chaos of culture in America. Cultural chaos in America. That could be His will. His will through bringing about His kingdom could be losing our savings through a stock market crash. His will to bring about His kingdom could be cancer or sickness. It might not. It might not be any of those things, but this is what we're saying. Not my kingdom, not my will, not my hopes, not my dreams, not what I want, not what I hope, but what you want, what you will, may your kingdom come. 
by this prayer, we're surrendering our plans and our comforts and our securities on the altar of submission, and we're killing them. Because Christ-like prayer is God-praising, God-submitting prayer. The kingdom and His will revolves around Him. And we submit to that. I'm not as bad as I used to be, um, but I'm generally a non-assertive person. I used to work in a coffee shop where we, we would have people on call. When I was on call, if someone was like, hey, I've got a lot of homework to do, can you cover my shift for me? It was so hard for me to say no. I learned to say no because like, hey, I've got a lot of homework too. Uh, but one of the things uh, I used to struggle with was asking, right? I, I didn't want people, I didn't want our relationship to be strained, right? If I had to ask for like a favor or for permission. I didn't want to strain the relationship, so I had a lot of trouble asking, they want to be rude or anything. And, of course, I, I learned that the answer is always no if you never ask. But Jesus invites us to come to this God as our Father and to submit to His will, but also to ask. There's room where as we submit to God's will, here's another tension, as we submit to His will, there is room, plenty of room for us, for our asking. But the emphasis isn't so much on what to ask for, but the disposition of our hearts. So, secondly, Christ-like prayer is heart-oriented prayer. Christ-like prayer is heart-oriented prayer. The first thing Jesus shows us to ask for is daily bread. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, uh, in Jesus' day, your daily bread was an actual thing, right? You're paid based on daily wages. So the wage that you get for that day is the wage that you have to buy food for that day. There's, there's not much saving up, right? We, we have people who go and kill deer and they have meat for the rest of the year, right? So this is an altogether different thing. So... The prayer isn't so much about food, though, as it is dependence. The heart orientation of depending on God to meet our needs. It's simple. We're asking God to provide for us what we need. I've heard it before, right? When, When Jesus invites us to ask for anything we wish, we don't ask for a car. But if you need a car, you ask for a car. Because it's what you need, right? God wants to provide for us, so we ask him, please provide for us. God, I need a car to get to work. <laughs> please give us a car. And what's, what's so important about this phrase, I mean, it's just like, what, six words, seven words, give us this day our daily bread? But it is the foundational disposition of the whole Beatitudes, dependence. Craig Keener said it like this. He said, this is not the prayer of the complacent and the self-satisfied, but of the humble, the lowly, the broken, the desperate. It is the prayer of the meek who will inherit the earth. 
So the prayer is not simply about the request that's being made, although that's important, right? We want to pray for all kinds of requests and needs, but it's most importantly about the attitude of the heart. So here's the thing. We're all about solutions, right? We want solutions. So when we ask, what we want is the result of what we ask for, right? God, give me bread. What we want is bread. But sometimes, maybe even most of the time, asking God and depending on Him isn't about finding solutions to our problems. It's about the dependence itself. When someone like our very own Linda asks day after day after day to be healed from her muscle degeneration, the point may not be the healing. It might not be solving her problems. It might be about the dependence. Now, just like there is a tension in the Lord's Prayer about praying secretly and praying in community, there is another tension. There's the tension between the Father knowing what we need before we ask and yet asking Him anyway. I'm sorry, I'm just going to move this so it doesn't keep doing that. There's the tension between asking God, God knowing what we need before we ask and asking Him. Jesus said in verse 8, your father knows what you need before asking. So the question is, why ask it all? He knows what we need, so why ask? After all, Jesus said himself in chapter 5, verse 45, what God makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and sins rain on the just and the unjust. Listen, God provides for the needs of unbelievers all the time. The fact that any unbeliever draws breath is a sign that God is actively providing for them. The problem is that they don't recognize that. We ask so that we may enjoy God's provision and give Him glory for it. That's why we ask. God not only wants us to enjoy His provision, He wants us to enjoy Him. So, God might heal you, even if you ask, never ask for healing from cancer. But the reason that you ask is so that you will give glory directly to the Father when or if it happens. To quote Jonathan Pennington again, It's not as if humans' daily bread needs are contingent on their faithfulness in praying. Rather, believers are invited to experience the Father's care and the necessary orientation of humility and dependence by praying for God's daily provision. Jesus calls this being blessed. So heart-oriented prayer is about dependence, but it's also about obedience. Jesus continues, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Like praying for the provision of our needs, praying for forgiveness is about praying for the provision of our deepest need. Forgiveness. And listen, listen what this implies. 
God already knows that we need to be forgiven. God is not surprised by our sin. He's not surprised by how wicked our sin can be. He's not surprised by this. Last week, we learned, right, one of my points was we can come to God as we are. We don't have to get rid of all the sin in our lives because we can't get rid of all the sin in our lives. We come to Him as filthy, dirty sinners asking for grace. And that's exactly what confession is about. Laying our bare secret sins before the Father who is in secret. Laying our secret sins before our secret Father. Not trying to hold back or make excuses for our sin or or rename them or, or skirt around them, but freely confessing how we've transgressed. We're being honest about our sin over and over and over again. Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, he said the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. But again, like asking for bread, the question is worth asking, if we've already been forgiven, why continue to ask for forgiveness? You guys are asking some really good questions today. Yes, we are already forgiven. In Christ, we are already children of the Father, and nothing can change that. But our ongoing confession and repentance is a sign that we've already been forgiven. In prayer, when I, when I pray, I confess the most, and I confess the most freely when I realize God's grace to me the most. When by faith I realize again and anew just how amazing God's grace is, I confess nobody can let loose my tongue like grace. His grace and the fact that He has already forgiven me makes me want to confess and repent more. And so, just like asking for bread to enjoy God's provision, we ask for forgiveness to enjoy God's grace. In other words, we confess to partake in and enjoy our already forgiveness to remove the barriers to our enjoyment of that forgiveness. Where God gives the grace, God gets the glory, and we confess our sins so that we can enjoy that grace more and more and more. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. That's the Sermon on the Mount, again, as a whole. Jesus doesn't let off the hook. We can't ask For forgiveness, if in our hearts we have not already extended forgiveness to others. What matters is what's happening here. This right here is just as much a prayer for obedience as it is for forgiveness. That we might show grace as we've been shown. And it's only when we reflect on how much God has forgiven us when any offense that any other human causes us pales in comparison. 
I get mad when someone does the same thing over and over and over that provokes me to anger. They just keep doing it. Well, guess what? I do the same thing to God, and God shows me grace after grace after grace. So we pray not only to be forgiven, but to extend grace and forgiveness freely to others. So this is a prayer of forgiveness and obedience. Which actually bleeds into the last petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're praying for obedience, and we're praying for deliverance. Just as praying for forgiveness is a prayer for obedience, so we pray for the obedience to avoid willful sins. Psalm 19, David prays, Lord, keep willful sins far from me. reason we pray this is because we are prone to wander and our enemy exploits our wayward hearts. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. We just come up with ways to sin and to make idols. And this is interesting, isn't it? We're praying for God. God, don't lead us into temptation. That's, that's, a, that's kind of a crazy prayer. Because, of course, God doesn't lead us into temptation. But God, what does God do? He leads us through trials and suffering. And it is that suffering and trial that can tempt us to sin. Jesus already told us, you're going to be persecuted. So that's going to happen. But what we don't want is to be tempted to sin in those trials. In fact, James 1 is really helpful here. Actually, there's... A lot of parallel between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. But James 1 starts off how? Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. And then, not many verses later, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. The reason James tries, ties trial and temptation together is because while God intends our trials for good, we pray earnestly that trials would not be our downfall. Trials are hard, and we ask not to be led into temptation in those trials. Think of the story of Israel in the wilderness, the whole wilderness walk was a testing and trial and suffering and they let that give them into temptation. God meant it for their good but they gave way to sin. So we pray for deliverance and for obedience. Christ-like prayer is is heart-oriented prayer. Jesus He ends this prayer with a warning. Kind of wish that Jesus would be more peachy, but sometimes he isn't. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Think of, think of how Jesus bookends this prayer. Right? He says, pray this way. Pray like this. And then he ends it with, he ends it this way. Centering it on our heart's orientation. So, Jesus isn't just giving us words to recite, but a heart to adopt. It's not just the words of prayer that matter. And words in prayer do matter, but it's the heart behind the prayers. So what I'm trying to say is that one huge reason why Jesus ends this prayer with this warning is to show that not only what we pray, but how we pray is the most important thing in our prayer. The heart that's behind saying, oh God, be praised. If you're in your heart, you're not willing to forgive others. If you're always bitter, if you're always holding on to anger, if you're not willing to forgive even those that slap you on the cheek, what kind of heart can also say praise God? Words matter, yes, but more deeply the heart behind our words. So we ask Jesus to give us right hearts so that we can pray right prayers. Give us Christ-like hearts so that we can pray Christ-like prayers. And no, you cannot pray this without a right heart. You cannot come and say, Our Father, if you have not come to the Father through the Son and submitted to the Son as your King. You cannot adopt this prayer, adopt this heart, pray this prayer, if you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And God has not forgiven you of your sin but He will freely and abundantly if you submit to His Son. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of this prayer. Several chapters later, we find Jesus in a garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus had to pray, not what I will, but what you will, because our heart stubbornly resisted His will. When Jesus is going to the cross, and He prays in Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, He perfectly submits to the Father, because we in our sin have stubbornly refused to. We've rejected His reign and His rule. We've said, Father, not hallowed be Your name, but cursed be Your name. Jesus was led to the cross precisely for ruined, poor sinners such as us. And so, because of that, we enter through the Son into the presence of our Father and we pray simple, direct, God-centered, heart-oriented prayers. And it's because that Jesus was led to the cross, now we are free to follow His example and pray, not what I will, but what you will. 
we are now free to pray Christ-like prayers. So let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you that you are not put off when we call you Father, but you love to hear your children call you Father. You are our Father who is in heaven, who is ruling and reigning right now, but we pray that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come, Lord. Establish your rule here on earth, here in creation as it is in heaven. End sin, end injustice, and Lord, bring your reign through our hearts. Father, please provide for us what we need. Provide for us food and clothing and warmth. Provide for us grace. Father, forgive us for the many, many, many ways we sin against you. Even as we have forgiven others, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to forgive others. Father, the road of following Christ is a narrow, hard road. It is difficult. But Lord, lead us not into temptation. Keep us faithful to you. Keep us obedient to you and deliver us from the evil one. We need you, Father, and we ask this in the name of your Son who is our perfect righteousness. Amen.